Welcome to the Gem Series. On today's episode, I am thrilled to introduce Benny Tran. Benny is an experienced executive in strategy and project development across multiple industries, including sports and entertainment, health, sustainability, and management consulting. He has worked with the Clintons, dealing with major global issues like climate change and HIV. He's launched a basketball team in Vietnam, and he was absolutely instrumental in building the stadium for the Los Angeles Football Club. So, what does all of this mean? It means that Benny is a master of execution. I had so many questions about how to take something from beginning to finish, so take a listen and you'll hear about what it takes to truly execute. All right, so today on the Gym Series, I am so happy to have Benny Tran. Hey, Benny, how are you doing? Hello, everyone. Great, great. Uh, for anybody that doesn't know Benny, uh, you know, you've worked with the, uh, the Clintons, helping with, you know, dealing with major global issues like climate change and HIV. You've helped launch a basketball team in Vietnam. And uh, you, you've built a massive stadium and you are growing LAFC like wildfire. Um, for those that, you know, don't know before sports, what was your what was your background? Benny? Yeah, my background was in um, actually international development. I uh, went to public policy school for it and also worked for the Clinton Foundation on public health and climate change. And then before that, I started off my career as a management consultant. Oh, got it. Got it. And what was, uh, it's just wild to think about that big shift, I guess, from going from working with the Clintons to getting into the sports world and, and, and really uh, helping build out the LA, LAFC team. I, I think a key thing that I was looking at was uh, some of your, you know, leadership skills that you've, you've built up over time. Can you tell me a little bit? I was wanting to know, I guess, background. What was growing up like for you? And, and what do you think maybe led, led you down this path? Yeah, you know, it's, um, I've been very fortunate to, to go down the path that I've been on. Um, it's a, it's a, not a, it's an untraditional path. But yeah, I grew up in Atlanta. Um, that's how I know Vu as a childhood friends with my brother and childhood friends with us. Um, you know, in a very modest family, you know, we, we were on government programs. And, um, you know, one of the biggest drivers for me was to make sure that, <clears throat> that uh, growing up, we were successful. So that, you know, that we as a, the future of our family didn't have to live in such a situation, but also for the future of the next generation of the Tran family to make sure that we were, um, ensure that we were successful. And very luckily, I mean, you know, my parents worked all the time. Many of us were self-sufficient. Um, and then, you know, I have a brother who's a, who's a tenured professor at Vanderbilt. My sister does, we were one of the top performers as an insurance underwriter. Um, and I've had the pleasure of taking a fun journey um, you know, in my life that took me across around the world and across different sectors. And so um, what's interesting in high school is what really opened my mind uh, was really when my brother told me that I should learn Arabic because I was offered at our high school, uh, either Arabic or Chinese. And that was a ticket for you know, making yourself unique in college applications. And luckily, we had a high school where they offered the International Studies Program international baccalaureate program, but also Chinese and Arabic as options. And at the time, I didn't like being, I didn't want to do anything Asian because I came from an Asian background and I wanted to try Arabic. And lo and behold, I, I fell in love with it. It was, wow. it, it was um, you know, that kind of really put me on the path of, one, getting having the ability to actually leave Atlanta 
but then also kind of my exposure to the world. Um, the, that kind of experience kind of opened my eyes to my own political identity or my own ethnic background. Uh, and so that's, yeah, I went high school, went to study, uh, you know, summer school uh, at, in Massachusetts. And then they, I was sent to Egypt to study for a summer. And I absolutely got hooked to traveling and learning new cultures. And then in, high, in college, I went full throttle with studying the Middle East and Arabic. And then that's what I did primarily and lived in Egypt for a summer. I went to the Middlebury language program where you have to commit not to violate speaking a, a language other than that language, including English, unless you're ordering, of course, like I don't wow. know, Chinese food at the, the, the restaurant down the street. Um, so all very informative, very cool. Got exposed to new cultures, new new people. Um, and that's kind of where I discovered where I, I really will have the desire to help people in dire situations, which in Egypt, poverty level is very high. Um, it's, a, it's a developing country. Um, I volunteered for nonprofits. And so that's where I kind of planted, it planted the seed in me to really pursue something international, which could have included being joining the State Department, our diplomatic corps. Um, and that's kind of how it, it all started. Wow. Okay. That's quite a, quite a journey. And also, I just want to say that immersive language experience. Oh my gosh. It's, uh, it can be, it can be pretty intense, right? Uh, <laughs> I, I enjoyed it. You know, I loved it. Um, I think it also depends on what level you are. If you're, they, they actually had people beginning to study Arabic and that's hard, but mm. I was already level 300 at university level. So I already had pretty well, you know, the mechanics of using the language just was came easy for me. So the the uh, the immersion wasn't too bad. And I really enjoyed it. So that's no, that's that's incredible. Um and as you're going through this, you go uh to Emory, right? And then from there you go on to to Princeton. So What's your, I guess, what's your mindset? I mean, have you started kind of narrow, honing in on something that you're, you're really trying to, to go after at this point? Because it sounds like the world's pretty wide open, right, at, yeah. at this stage of life. Well, it, it, you know, yeah, the pathway was, I mean, it even further opened up when I decided to apply for Fulbright, you know, Fulbright to scholarship. And then uh, that was, gave me the opportunity to go to Vietnam. And so it was the opportunity to explore a new part of the world. It was my heritage country. Uh, it was very cool. And so um, it kind of led down the path of, you know, wanting to do the same thing, except that it was supposed to another part of the world. Um, and, and, the, and after that, you know, returned to the United States to find a job before I could apply for grad school. Because in grad school, I mean, the way that it works. So, you know, in terms of mindset and goals, you know, there's goals at every step of the way, right? First of all, high school, how do I get into college? And what do I need to do to, to ensure that the probability of getting into college, a good college. Look, I got denied by a bunch of schools, Harvard, Duke, Stanford. Uh, luckily, I stuck with Emory, who, who unfortunately gave me a full scholarship to go there, and that was the best thing that happened. And then um, when I came back from doing my Fulbright, I didn't have a job, so I landed at a management consulting firm, which actually gave me a baseline of how to really approach uh, a lot of the work that I did in my career or solving problems. And so... Um, yeah, so that was with the goal of getting into one of these international studies, international development programs. So actually I actually had goals, but I was trying to achieve what was my next step to get there, especially in the early times in your career. You have to decide and understand 
how you become successful in that sector. In the international development sector, you essentially have to get experience before you grad school and then go to grad school in order to get a good job. And you know, there's, there's yeah. certain sectors like this one where if you don't have experience, you can't get a master's degree, but no one's going to give you a job if you're too inexperienced. So mm-hmm. sometimes you got to figure out the best pathway because look, not a lot of people can afford to pick up, go to an African, you know, sub-Saharan African village, try to help a village do X, Y, Z, unless it's Peace Corps, then have sure. enough to go to the top five grad school that does this stuff, then that continues your level of education. I think public health, a couple, a couple of sectors that are similar to that, um, as opposed to getting an MBA um, that can give you a general education to support you to do whatever you want. I think in today's world, if you go for an MBA, it's helpful in either for-profit or non-profit sector. Um, and also you can see the evolution of, you know, how the uh, private sector does help with nonprofit issues or social issues or economic development issues in, in developing countries. So, yeah, I mean, I think we talked about this before where, you know, what was your goal and mindset? Actually, I had goals. Um, mm-hmm. That was the first step of your career, right? Do you need to decide whether you not need to get a graduate degree, how and why? And then you have to get there before you even think about bigger dreams. You know, for example, um, you know, grad school. Uh, for me, in order to work at, so if I had dreams to work in the United Nations, the World Bank, you have to go to the top schools to get there. So how do I get to the top schools so that I could continue? No. Not necessarily always true. Um, I think that's unfair to say other programs. It's just one of those things that we have to assess the probability of, you know, how you want to chart your success within that particular um, linear um, progression. Absolutely. Well, I, I, I think that's, uh, you know, it's, it's really fascinating to think about the way that career paths operate. And, you know, I guess a, a, a parallel that I'm picking up on is, I mean, you're excellent at, at execution in the sense of it sounds like you envision the end goal and you're always able to kind of navigate, figure out, because even now you're talking about, yeah, you know, like, sure, there's a goal, but there's steps to be able to get there. And, and uh, no, I, I, I just find that uh, I find that really interesting. And, you know, for me, I, something I'd love to know about is what were some of the challenges along the way? Because I'm sure you uncovered some unknowns as you're going through all of this sure well i mean one big challenge is the unknown you know when you're going down a path you don't know what will happen so sometimes you try to maximize your upside but at the same time you're managing your downside risks right so how do you manage Mm -hmm. optionality downside risks what happens if you don't get into harvard what do you do if you don't get that job you don't get what you want um you got to figure out how what the plan is and also not stress out about it and just make sure that there's optionality and um, there's opportunities everywhere. And sometimes it takes pivoting. Sometimes it's just basically to, you know, you, you take a chance on things, right? Um, and, and sometimes, you know, when luck is when opportunity meets preparation. So you always have to be prepared. Um, and I feel like a lot of time, a lot of moments in my life have been very lucky. Um, and, and so I'm very fortunate with the people in my life and the opportunities that have come through. And it's been zigzagging like crazy. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, how I, you know, we talked a little bit about going to grad school, but at the same time, how do you establish the base skill set to execute? And that's kind of what they to train you a little bit in management consulting is you can hop on different projects to figure out problems. Um, sometimes it's strategy, sometimes operational, and sometimes that's how those, some of those firms are going to tap into 
experts in the firm. My firm, we didn't have that luxury. And, and actually, when I moved to the Clinton Foundation, the leadership was actually from management consulting. So the level, same level of rigor of analysis and execution, but actually, in fact, we were implementing, we were, we were not a donor. The Clinton Foundation wasn't a donor. It was also an implementing organization. So we actually had boots on the ground doing the work. Um, and that actually is something that I found wow. fascinating. And that I found fascinating until today. Um, the approach of the Clinton Foundation was to, um, you can solve most anything. So you had the you know, people with a background, similar consultants. And then you had, of course, the medical professionals, the public health professionals that provided the high level of expertise. I remember, you know, I showed up to Tanzania and my boss, my, my, my direct boss, who was a deputy country director at the point, was a, you know, worked at McKinsey's at Benny. We have a million dollar fund from the, the Swedish government. Go figure out how to treat HIV AIDS patients in rural areas. It's like, okay. Hopped on, the, hopped on a car and went to rural uh, Tanzania and tried to figure out what, uh, analyze the situation, under, try to understand what was going on and see if we can actually develop a program that actually helps um, provide medicine and, and, and keep people alive who are living with HIV um, in rural areas. And that was kind of like a, a pilot model program that was supposedly replicable across the country or other parts of the world as well. Wow, that's, you know, I, I can't even imagine taking on something so uh, so global. But what's interesting is it sounds like you're still able to bring it to to the community. Um, tell me a little bit about that that transition from uh, you know joining whenever you started joining with the the, the Clintons over there. I, I, I'd love to hear like how did that how how did that pan out and um, yeah how, how, what happened? I'd love to hear. Well, this, that story. this is one of those things where I'm telling you, I mean, I get lucky, right? So. Um, you know, we're very fortunate at Princeton. We're a small program and uh, everyone gets funded by that program. Uh, and that's why we have the amazing people that we do that come through that program and, and also a balance of equity and, and giving people opportunities. So they had a summer program that they also funded. And then I applied to the World Bank United Nations in Vietnam because I had a previous background in being in Vietnam. I got denied. So uh, it was April and, and my wonderful uh, counselor at the time, her name's Ann, or graduate career advisor, Ann Cornwood was like, Benny, you need to get a job. And so for the summer, um, and the Clinton Foundation, I had no, I had no background in public health, no desire to go to Africa. And they rolled around for an interview. They're like, we like you. You want to go? I'm like, okay. And then interviewed the folks in Tanzania and then hopped on a plane a month later and then, um, landed. And then, uh, it was go time by, by the time I got there. So, um, that's kind of by chance, but it kind of launched my career with the foundation, the Clinton Foundation. And then after I came back to grad school, um, I got, they were opening the office in Vietnam and Southeast Asia. And then they asked me if I wanted to join them there to open that office. So that's how that all began. Um, and then that's, you know, led to um, working in Vietnam for seven years for the foundation. Uh, and then we, mm -hmm. and then at some point in time, they said, well, why don't you tackle on climate change? The climate change program and then implement that as well in country and also around the region um and it was interesting like you said in terms of um you know working in the community on the ground but also our approach was we always wanted to work in national governments and so we were working at the policy level the planning level mm -hmm. national level and we were working on the ground um where we we're implementing programs like for example how do you figure out 
have to send blood samples to a lab when there's only one lab in the middle of like within, you know, not within 300 miles of the surrounding provinces. How do you actually get a patient to give blood, to get it tested, to understand if they do or living with HIV, then figure out how to treat them afterwards, right? So you're talking about the complete verticality of all those programs. Per policy, the programs to go on the ground implementation. Um, and yeah, we had a small team, we're nimble and we had to do it all. So that, that was pretty Thanks. cool. So incredibly cool. So what was it like, you know, going from the US to Tanzania? What was your, I mean, were you, were you were living out there for a while? Yeah, was I spent about four months out there. Summer? I spent four months in the, out there working for the Clinton Foundation. And you know, look, I think I think my international career started with living in Egypt twice. So mm -hmm. I wasn't too foreign. Now, Sub-Saharan Africa sometimes can be fine, but it's also not the easiest place to live. Um, but you know, for me, international travel was not uncommon, and and I took on every stride and um, learned the culture, learned the people, learned how to um, you know work uh, there, work with people there, and then. Um, you know, every single new country I live in or visit, um, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an education. It's a, it's a lesson, um, and a lesson to, it's a way to grow and open your mind up a little bit. And, and all of it's educational, you know, in terms of understanding perspectives. And then, for example, you know, um, how do I perceive the market of LA when we're building uh, the community and the fan base here? Absolutely. Um, and you know, that's something that I, I think is incredibly, uh, empowering and, 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 you know, what gets me really excited is the idea of being able to somehow make an impact in, in other people's life. What would you say is kind of your, was your driving force? I mean, when you were dealing with such global issues, what, what, what pushed you typically? You know, I think it was the passion to, to help improves people's lives you know we had a mission and and the, the interesting thing about working in hiv specifically care treatment is that at the time if you don't get medicine to people they're gonna die um and it was a mission our boss at the time like if you if you're not into it if in it to do this then you don't need to be here um but we all had a hard mission to get as many people on treatment as possible so the drugs were there there's another arm of the foundation that worked on supply chain and demand so that it would lower air, you know, the cost of the drugs, right? It went from 10,000 to less than 600 to less than 100 within a time span of a, less than a decade. And that was a good part of the other, it was a good part of the other side of the foundation that allowed us to actually say, okay, now we can figure out how, we have the medicine, now we got to figure out how to mm -hmm. actually get the medicine to people. And of course, it's not, as, it's not as simple as giving people medicine, right? Diagnosis, treatment, lab work, monitoring, and then people had to fight stigma and, and that's why, you know, a lot of it was anchored in a lot of international development, right? It's all about whether it's education, whether it is health, whether it is, you know, legal or law, it's all about changing human behavior. And that's what public policy really is. How do you actually create a, a large policy to effectuate change um, mm. in mass? Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. And it's interesting in the context of how America is approaching or have experienced COVID the role of government, the role of public policy. Um, I think, you know, as you can already observe, it's kind of slid down the path of what people forgot, what the government does for them, but also it's contextually different in, in other countries as well. So um, 
yeah, I think that's something that, that uh, you know, I learned and picked up and then, you know, from, I guess what we can call, you know, my friend last night, we had dinner about this, right? It's uh, intellect, it could be a better name, but intellectual elasticity of figuring out problems at many different levels. And I'm going to mm. go operational back up to strategic or you know, policy level, but even being able to cover between both of them and everything in between. Um, you know, I've been fortunate enough to, to kind of engage that way. Um, and it's been interesting. Well, how do you keep such a cool head when you're dealing with something of that scale? I mean, climate change, uh, HIV, uh, what, yeah. Wh- how do you, how do you eat the elephant one bite at a time, <laughs> so to speak? Well, well, I mean, look, they're, they're enormous issues. There's enormous issues you can't solve for everyone. So you got to think about what you can possibly do. Um, for yeah. example, in Vietnam, if, if the number, the percentage of people living with HIV is 0.4%, the numbers are not as big as Tanzania that are, you know, what it was now or even then, it was maybe uh, 5% or 10%. So you're talking about different scales, and you just have to approach it that way. And it's also kind of how you solve problems. So I think that makes a difference, right? If there's such a big number, then you have to make sure that infrastructure is there. If it's a small number, then you adjust to see what kind of... Um, how do you apply and solve that problem? So, you know, at the end of the day, there's percentage numbers, but there's also absolute numbers. And when you're dealing with lives, you know, these are, these are real numbers. I mean, we're going through this with COVID. Why does it matter? Even though it's a small percentage, why do hospital beds matter? Because at the end mm. of the day, when hospital beds, you're going to have people out there dying. And yeah. So you're putting doctors in a position to make decisions on who to choose to let live essentially, right? They don't want to be in that position. Wow. Yeah, that is uh, just so true. And I feel like that framework could can really be applied to to everything uh, that, that you just listed out, this framework for being able to identify the numbers and be able to, uh, you know, make a an inform, a truly informed decision. Um, I just, I guess for me, I'm like, from our conversations, you're, you're, uh, you have, you keep such a, you have such a cool head and I can just, I don't know. It seems like I can't imagine you, uh, ever being in a scenario where you're like ripping your hair out. And I feel like you, you, you kind of can't, I don't know, but well, that's not true. I rip my hair out quite often, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think, you know, you, you just measure out what you can effectuate and you try to effectuate, it, even though, you, you know, people think it's impossible. I keep that in mind and shifting away from, you know, that's, yeah. you know, these issues are always not the funnest issues to talk about are let's shift it a little bit where we worked on climate change and we're trying to have people reduce their carbon emissions, right? And you can choose anything, right? Electrical car, electric mm-hmm. cars. What we were specifically worked on was how do we reduce energy consumption in buildings in Southeast Asia? And we had mm-hmm. a model to try to figure out how to trigger buildings to reduce their energy consumption because it's a massive emitter of CO2 um, what is the right business model to approach and help them adopt energy efficiency measures, right? So, I mean, yeah, we landed in Jakarta and we're like, well, does anyone have any of these things? And then you start figuring out how to cobble together. We knew what the business model could be. It existed elsewhere in the world, just didn't exist in these countries. And then you start piecing the, the, the parties together to execute a business model that would lend itself to long-term adoption. And it's not easy. I mean, it can take years and years and a lot of different levers, right? But understanding the wide knowledge of, hey, there's this economic incentive, there's this law, 
there's this willingness of a building to X, Y, Z. There's service providers who can come in and help these buildings do X. Then you start kind of you know, putting things together. But if you already say that you can't do something, you're not going to do it, right? You're, you're always yeah. to, you have the hope to achieve. And that was part of my education at the Clinton Foundation. We're going to, you know, Clinton had a mandate. We're going to go out there and do things that are different and approach this differently. And we're going to effectuate change. Um, and for a small and organization, I think that um, we were able to do a lot of that. And we, look, we failed in many other regards too. And I think that's what's really important. The other side of it is you, you should expect failures. Um, you know, the tech sector says you, if you don't fail, then you haven't succeeded. Uh, but that's, you, it's kind of true in a sense, you know? Um, yeah. yeah. So, you know, I always say it's not about, you know, how you fall, but it's how you get up and you got to keep going. And I think that's, you know, it lends itself to a lot of different things like A-B testing. What is A-B testing? You got to keep testing until you find the right answer or you keep testing because, you know, we have a stadium and we have the Los Angeles football club. We have players, but we have fans who like things, experience certain things. And you never know what they'll like one day or the next. And you got to go figure it out mm. and reiterate until, hey, they actually like uh, the, the carne asada nachos. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's no, I, I think that's really, really essential being able to um, hone in on. Yeah, exactly. Just reiterate over, over and over again, as much as humanly possible. Um, let's, I, I, you know, I keep thinking I'm because you, I mean, you, you, you've been to so many different countries, by the way, I think you've named like five since we've been chatting. Um, but you know, going to Vietnam, you went out there for seven years. Can you tell me what was, yeah, what was life like over there? It was great. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Vietnam, Vietnam would, I would say, uh, is one of the easier places to live in the world. Um, it has good food, infrastructure, things to do, uh, fun things to do. Uh, you know, I had a great time. Now, um, you know, Southeast Asia is really interesting. I mean, all the economies are growing at the time. And one of some of the fastest growing economies within Asia, which is also the fastest growing region of the world. Uh, things are changing. I mean, I remember... I would travel, and next thing you know, I came back to Ho Chi Minh City or Saigon, and there's three new buildings. And so it was fascinating to witness um, the hustle and bustle that was occurring there. Um, mm. It's uniquely different than my experience in, say, Sub-Saharan Africa and, and the Middle East. Um, you know, that's that was that was a really fascinating time to be um, in Southeast Asia and, and learn about. I mean, Southeast Asia is also unique in the sense that every single country is completely different language, people, culture. So I would travel almost every week to Jakarta, to Bangkok, to Manila, to Hanoi, mm. to Singapore. Um, and, you know, going back to solving, you know, trying to solve problems, we had uniquely different sets of problems in every single different country. And I really enjoyed that. You are, you are a man of mystery. You've done a little bit of everything, <laughs> Vinny. I, <laughs> I no, I, I love it. Uh, it, it, it gives me so many different questions that I, I, I'm curious about. Um, also, you know, at this time you're working with the Clinton Foundation. This is just something I got to know. Did you did you get to meet the Clintons then or yes. did you? Well, so Hillary was Secretary of State, so I've never actually met her directly. Um, I actually was able to meet uh, President Clinton uh, six times in total in person. I'm very fortunate to uh, be part of his logistics and hosting team in th three times, which is cool. Uh, wow. 
that's where I learned my event chops because when you when President Clinton comes to your country, it's like a rock star coming through or a head of state coming through with a whole fanfare. You got the motorcades, you got the crowds, you know, you got your runner show and TikToks like everybody you're fine by every minute and moving in and out. Um and was very fortunate to spend some time with President Clinton, even for a day or two each time he visited, but uh was very fortunate. He's a very unique man, very charismatic, um, an amazing human being. Uh, and to see also witnessing like the country of Vietnam. He was the one who normalized relations. Um, yeah. Such Africa. He is a hero. I mean, I remember the first time I, I was carrying his luggage. That was my proud moment. I was carrying his luggage. I put it on the, oh, I put it on the car. Yeah. We put it on the car. <laughs> we were the car following his car. We showed up to the hotel. All the hotel workers were in the lobby. They were crying and cheering for President Clinton. So that's kind of, it's pretty amazing. Oh my gosh. That's got to be powerful to witness. Very powerful. Um, yeah. So it was very, very cool. So that was a cool part of my job um, at the time. But it, it's pretty tough. You got to plan for a whole week. And, you know, it's a, it's a head of state coming to visit. But it's pretty amazing. And, and also how it affects the way that we approach our work and our influence and our work. So we don't have to be a big... Now, everybody knows CDC. CDC is very active across the world. We're not a big CDC, fully funded with a lot of staff. We had 20 people in Vietnam trying to do all the work that we did. So it was very similar across the world of how nimble we want to be and, and, yeah. um, and how we, we can really have a large impact. I wouldn't make a little, you know, I mean, we were working all the time, um, but it was kind of passion and, and passion and, and mission that drove us to do what we needed to do and what we, what we ultimately tried to be successful at and then that was really achieving those kind of outcomes we talked about um, for public health. That would be a really uh, electrifying experience I think in the sense of being able to feed off of each other's energy and all be driven to, to to one mission and I have no doubt that you were you were the one to, to the right person for the job over there. Uh, any any piece of advice that that did you ever get a piece of advice from uh, Bill Clinton by chance? <laughs> Not directly, I don't think, but, you know, he's always out there, you know. Um, you, one of the biggest things I did is this didn't come from Bill Clinton, but uh, you have to be patient. And mm. when you're working with, I'll give you an example. When you work with national governments, you know, every single one is different. Every single one has their own structures and every single one has their own opinion. So it wasn't without frustration um, that you tried to implement anything. I'll give you an example, you know, when you'd have, uh, apply for a small business loan. You know, you have to go through a lot of forms, right? I think they've actually fixed that right now. But, you know, um, you have to have a lot of patience. It took us a long time to implement some of the work that we did. We we knew what the answers were. And the WHO, the World Health Organization, had guidelines of what countries should adopt. But every country feels like they needed to adjust it for their own, you know, customize it for themselves, right? So yeah. we knew what the answer was and we could have done it the next day. But... That doesn't work that way. You have to vet it. The local experts have to see it. You have to make sure that the people on the ground are right. Then it goes through its system. It could take a year. But when it hits, um, you know, it's very rewarding. You know, and every country is different. Vietnam takes a long time to do something. But when they decide to do something on a nationwide basis, it literally happens the next day. Other places, wow. great. We'll issue a plan. And then it takes a little while to, to, make, to work itself out. And, um, that's something in America is a little bit different. I think that um, the policies take time, but things do uh, 
or action or operationalized pretty quickly. But you have to have to have that kind of patience in these different countries that operate differently than we do. So our educational process, and I'll be able to tell you what, when I came back to America, I had to get used to American work professional culture, and that's different in itself. So um, always learning, always adjusting, um, pulling my hair out. It's not that you have to figure out how to be cool and collective, but yeah, of course I'm stressed and pull my hair out and why this, why that. Um, but if you try to stress more than, you know, that really affects it. You're not really, you're not changing anything by stressing more. Um, that's something that's, I learned, you know, recently, you know, past couple of years. You know, you stress more, yeah. you're just making up stories to stress yourself out. It's going to focus on how to solve the situation. Absolutely. That's a really great perspective to have. I mean, you... <laughs> It takes time to stress, you know, uh, it, it takes time away from getting uh, getting the, the task at hand done. And, and, you know, ultimately, if it's if it's uh, going to be something that that eats away at your productivity hours, I think it's helpful to, to remember just uh, that. Yeah. You know, all you can do is try your, your absolute best and keep pushing forward. Uh, and, and it's an important that. mindset. You know, I'll give you an example. I was stressed out of what my boss thought about me. And I thought I was going to lose my job. But there was no point in time ever that he thought that he, he even had in his head that I would lose my job. And, and what happens is the negative outcome of that is you thinking about maybe him thinking that you may lose your job is negatively impacting productivity and your effectiveness. And, and, you know, and then it's a nasty cycle that way, you know. Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. So that is no, that's so that's so true. I mean, I, I've been in those scenarios, too, where I've, uh, you know, I've been thinking about something that's that's stressing me out or worrying about a, a client or uh, you know being afraid that somebody's upset I think you know there's there's all kinds of scenarios that pop up so um, yeah and, and it might just be outside of <laughs> outside of reality um, no I, I think that that's something that everybody everybody should uh, should always try to remind themselves at least if they want to hopefully live a little more uh, a little more calmly so how did how on earth did you did you get to start a a, a basketball team in Vietnam? That's pretty cool. <laughs> um, yeah, it was interesting. You know, one of my good friends uh, in Vietnam, his name's Henry Nguyen. He one day he was a guy. Got brought his friends together. Like, hey, I want to start a basketball team, and to bring in, we'll be part of the Southeast Asian League. And say, are you guys? Can you help me out? And then uh, next thing you know, you're like, hey, we got the basketball team. And then we cobbled together, you know, then separately there was a coach and a team. And then, um, you know, help with the branding, help with the execution of the games. It was very cool because, you know, Vietnamese didn't know much about basketball. We actually had to stop after the witnessing the first game that we had. Uh, fans were cheering for both teams and just clapping every single time somebody scored something. Well, so, it would be, ex it's exciting all around, you yeah. know. Um, I mean, that's, they're used yeah. to soccer, but, uh, you know, they, they weren't used to basketball. And, like, hey, why not? Let's clap and celebrate everybody's, like, you know, ability to score. And then uh, kind of <laughs> we had to whip out the microphone before the next game and had a training of 2,000 people in the, in, the, in the arena and say, hey, this is how things work. And then, you know, we grew over time and uh, they learned how to cheer and become fans of a basketball, a professional basketball team in Vietnam. Wow. Wow. And... 
What was, uh, yeah, what, what was your role in that? It sounds like, you know, I'm always hearing elements of, of community and, and, and being able to figure out like what people want and, and bring people together. Uh, yeah. What was your, yeah. What was, how did, what was your role in all of that? Yeah, no, we're, we're all hands on deck, help with some of the marketing, help with, um, bringing, bringing the crowd together and, and trying to work on the game day experience. Um, and, 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 you know, that was kind of like a side job. I was actually uh, the color commentator for ESPN Southeast Asia for our games. It's pretty fun. Um, and yeah, working with the crowd and, and really whipping them up and trying to build uh, a fandom for basketball in Vietnam. Um, but that community stuff, I mean, in terms of the approach, really didn't hit until we got to, I got to LAFC. Um, and, and, you know, if you do witness the way that we approach our brand um, and how we approach, you know, LAFC our community as in fans and our supporters and everything. Uh, we knew that was critical for our success to build a fan base and a culture around our brand. Really, we're building culture and brand and we wanted to build something that represented the city of LA to do so. And so when mm -hmm. approaching um, how we approach to build the brand and the, and the fan base was to be inclusive and to enroll them and, you know, not coming from a sports background and kind of learning about design thinking and other these these other methodologies we use design thinking to enroll people into designing their own building which is the stadium a physical building or wow. space and also so, wait, the stadium is fully informed by the community well, or the design is informed by the community there are elements of it that was formed by the community yes i mean that's we, so cool we did this in in coordination with our with um our um our architect look we had to lay down the foundation of everything right we should sure this sure. many this many seats and this many premium areas that was informed by our economic feasibility study but at the end of the day like how do you want to experience it what is your mobile experience like how do you want to engage what kind of food do you want um supporters and soccer culture are very specific right they they own a section they're the hardest hardcore um you know uh fans of the club and they're really important to us, right? And so we have a dedicated space for them. Uh, we're at 3252, standing only. We invested to make it standing only per their request. And they have their own area concourse where they co-design. We, we worked with them to co-design the space itself. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so if That's... you come and see it, I mean, this is driven completely by the fans um, in partnership with our creative director. Um, how, you know, we had sponsors in there. But yeah, you'll see it. This is their fingerprints all over. And we there are a lot of cool informative things that we gained from our fans too. Like for example, the supporter section was supposed to be standing only and we were informed by mothers like, listen, my husband is crazy and fun and he wants to stand in the standing section. I got two kids, so we need seats. So we mm -hmm. seats in the wings. They're still part of the supporter section, but they have seats versus standing only. So that was very important for us enrolling people and we try to do that on a regular basis with our fans get feedback on food get feedback on experience um and the way you do it is design thinking it's not a focus group it's not you know a one-to-one -one extraction um mm -hmm. let them sure. share ideas with each other and ideate uh we had a fun session one time with fans after our first year where i was like draw draw your own fan journey and tell me of which step of the way and how we can improve the process and, and that's, you know, that's kind of like some of the few things that we do here at our club. Um, and it's community driven. If you ever come out here, 
there's something called instead of tailgating, it's called a family picnic where the supporters set up their tents, they bring their beer, they bring their food, they feed our security guards before they we go to the game, or you know, it's all one big happy family, and we're all in commonality cheering for our team, um, and and that's how we approach them, you know, our club and and how it represents the city of Los Angeles and how the sport may be you know used as a platform to do that. So it's been great. Um, we're in our fifth yeah. season and. And it's been really, really fun. Of course, there's soccer, uh, but also, you know, our players are involved in the community and driving that aspect of, of our club in general. Oh, really? That's that's incredible. Um, you know, I, I just got to say, I, it sounds like you really built some serious trust with your fans uh, by going through this process. You got to actually know your fans and your supporters, I should say, uh, and, and they got to know you. I know it can be kind of daunting when you see that people are just building another giant infrastructure in your city. Right. And yeah, I, I feel like it's, it's essential uh, to, to be able to, you know, establish some sort of rapport or um, really get people on your side and especially so for sports. And it just seems like you have a gift for being able to start a movement. What have you learned about starting movements? Yeah, I learned a lot from my coworker. His name is Richard Roscoe, head of branding and community. Um, he was all so he's all about the movement. Um, I learned about social movements in developing countries. He's like he, he's like people movement, and and that's kind of what we were trying to build is a people movement in the city of Los Angeles. There was an existing team, the Galaxy, but we 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 knew that it was gonna wasn't gonna be easy, um, and we had to kind of map out our thesis of what we could do to be successful. Uh, and we were lucky enough to learn along the way and also kind of be successful at it. I mean, we've got a long way to go, but I think we've done a pretty decent job. You know, at the same time we were coming to L.A., we had to build a stadium, a team, a brand all at the same time and open the stadium within three years and four months, right? Um, meanwhile, there are two NFL teams moving to Los Angeles. So people are like, you guys are crazy. We're never getting done. You're never getting a stadium built. Um, but you know, we, we were able to execute. Wow. That's, uh, that's, that's gotta be, I mean, that I feel like, uh, this is so silly, but I feel like, yeah, if you, if you don't have haters, you're not doing it right. No, I'm just kidding. But, uh, you gotta have a few, you gotta, you're going to get a couple of people whenever you start doing something big like that. So, um, no, it's, it, it's, it's just funny how that, how that works out. So going from just to kind of put the pieces together, going from Vietnam back to the U.S. Tell me about, because I mean, it, it seemed like you were just absolutely killing it in Vietnam. You're going like all over Southeast Asia. You're super plugged in. I, I guess the reason I'm calling it out is because there's a lot of people that I would imagine they'd be like, yeah, I, I guess I'm going to I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. This is like a pretty sweet setup, a U.S. salary in Vietnam, too. Uh, you're probably like that's a good setup as well. I would uh, I, I would imagine. So what pushed you to take it to that next stage of life? Yeah, you know, at the time, I was 35 um, at that point of my career, you know, I wasn't ready to make a decision whether or not I would stay in Vietnam the rest of my life career or not. And, you know, at some level, I learned that there might be a perception that if you're in Vietnam for too long, you're market specific, skill specific, 
and it's hard to laterally move back to the U.S., especially when I've worked in the sector, you know, the nonprofit or development sector. Um, now, I knew that I didn't want to necessarily continue the international development sector or at least come back to it, but I wanted to do something different. So mm -hmm. one, I was making a pivot to business, uh, and then I wanted to make a pivot in market. So, um, and, and so in business, right, you go to business school because you're either changing careers or you go for networking or you want to build additional skills. But the big thing is you can pivot. So in my case, I didn't want to go back to business school. Um, and then I, you know, want to go back to private. And interestingly enough, when I was in the, you know, moved back to the US, that was more resounding than even my private experience with a mass consulting firm. So um, that's one thing that I wanted to prove myself to the private sector in the US, because between mm -hmm. after being it done in the US, then you can go back into the world and go anywhere else, right? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I think that was kind of like strategic on my part to switch markets and to switch uh, sectors um, and then maintaining flexibility is what I want to achieve. So then I can gain the experience and then decide later, do I want to go back or do you want to stay or do I want to go to another part of the world? And how do I shift across sectors, right? Which is, you know, maybe a little bit harder depending. But if you have, I mean, the way that we're trained as management consultants is, you know, you're a generalist as opposed to um, sector specific. But again, you know, that's the other thing I love about working in sports and working for uh, a sports team and a stadium is that you're constantly trying, it's very nuanced. It's not a hard, it's not a hard business per se, I guess maybe that's the wrong word to use. It's a very nuanced business. You're dealing with human behavior all the time. Are they gonna buy our tickets? Are they gonna buy our food? Uh, how are they gonna react to the team losing? Are they going to come when it rains? Is they going to come when it's hot? And it's always changing and you've got to constantly adjust. And that's what I find fascinating, right? Even parking may be the most mundane thing ever. But I got to make sure that's a good experience. And so why are people driving up this road versus the other road? Uh, and so that constant figuring out and, and, and solving problems and all human behavior based really goes back to what I was doing previously anyway, right? Which is, you know, public policy and trying to change human behavior for the better. Um, or changing policy and infrastructure and programs to change human behavior for a better outcome for their, for society in general and their own lives, right? So, you know, it's kind of all similar, have a similar line, um, but I yeah. think it's very interesting. I'm not trying to, when you're trying to sell widget A or widget B, you're still trying to figure out, you know, the market as well, right? So kind of all similar common principles apply. It's just that sports, you're selling a, you're selling an emotional product at some point or a media product that's on the field. And that's what you get to deal with. So that's you no, know, and and yeah, I, I it's I liked what you said about everything kind of adding up to to this moment now because that's something as we've been talking, I was like, well, you know, you've been growing your worldview. There's been this focus on community. There's been this focus on people. There's been this focus on leadership. There's been these big projects that you know it's like, all right, you have to execute. Um, and it seems like all of this would, you know, add up to making a lot of sense for creating what you're creating over at LAFC. Once you actually got to, uh, I, I guess something I would love to learn about is the, uh, the portion of time where you were, you know, in America, figuring out what you wanted to do next. What's the story behind finding the stadium over there and finding, finding that next, that next, uh, mission. In terms of, how did you, uh, how did, yeah, how did it, how did it happen? Did, were you hunting for it and you just saw 
<laughs> an opening or did somebody oh. approach you about it or oh yeah. in terms of the job or in terms of the, the actual stadium's location uh i was referring to the job yeah oh, yeah no yeah. so the same so again being lucky the same person who brought me into uh the saigon heat was the founding owner of lafc so he was like listen i know you're in san francisco look for a tech job and i know um, you're still looking but you know uh i might get this team uh, with a really great set of owners and trying to build um, a soccer team and a stadium in, in Los Angeles, uh, and it, mm-hmm. at which point I've never been to Southern California. And so um, at some point I'm like, well, why not? And so I went <laughs> and then uh, <laughs> the first thing I did was when I landed, on my, I went for an interview. It was first time in LA. A month later, I flew down. And I literally landed, went straight to a meeting and started, you know, helping with negotiating the lease for the stadium. It was a process that took about a year. Um, so this is where, it is. again, my work with national governments and trying to execute. And look, I've never built anything in my life, so I got to go figure it out. And not many people build stadiums or entitlements for land. So with a great team and a great founders and, the, you know, all the staff that we had, we had a small team of six to ten at the time really put mm-hmm. all our minds and our hearts and our blood, sweat and tears to look for the site, start designing it and putting together cadre of program manage, project managers, the, the, um, uh, the architects, um, you know, the construction companies to really start planning and designing a stadium. It was pretty fascinating, you know, to actually go through that process. It was a learning process for me um, to, to understand, Hey, they'll say, what do you want a stadium? I'm like, well, uh, okay, and then all our leadership team started putting together everything that we wanted in terms of ideas and elements. You know, we wanted the crowd to be tight, and it was driven by supporters. We wanted it at this size, and we wanted it to be modern, but then celebrate the game and build the cathedral of soccer. So that kind of started my journey on terms of designing a stadium, and then that, that's kind of how it all started. Wow. So what has this taught you about executing a executing a, a a goal like how do you start you know whenever you, <laughs> i mean i would imagine that you're like i don't know it might be uh, i i don't know if you're a projects guy or anything like that where you have personal projects at home but i i can imagine you being the type of person to be like yeah you know what i'm gonna build out my own car and then no, <laughs> working your way making yeah. it happen so. so 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 they've always there are all well first we had a great team i mean when we worked in time mm-hmm. we had a really good uh, team of legal and political consultants and you know and enrolling people to be part of the project right the city the people the folks in the local neighborhood um and make it having that level of engagement but there are also always people that you know have done it before so i was mm. to ask people i don't mind ever saying i don't know something and then i don't mind asking people like how did you approach this so we had, you know, partner organizations such as the Dodgers and the Sacramento Kings and the Warriors. And, you know, Atlanta at the time was building the Mercedes-Benz Stadium and Atlanta United was launched. And, you know, then we talked to the Falcons and we talked, you know, talking to everybody as much as possible to understand where the gaps are, what the best practices are and try to enroll it, you know, and incorporate it into the building as much as possible. Um, don't be afraid to ask people willing to help. Um, and I think, you know, all boats rise, right? So we learned a lot, you know, when it came to the fan stack or the technology stack or how do we do entry into um, the stadium? 
And at some level, too, we've kind of reached beyond, you know, the sports world to understand what the business world is doing. What is the perception of memberships and how is that mm. changing and how do millennials change in their perception of mobile usage? For example, you know, we went in hard pretty early, you know, but our thesis was uh, mobile is going to be everything. So um, sure. the head of technology, Christian Lau and myself were looking at this and we lived abroad. Everything is mobile-based, but in the, in the U.S., you know, it took a long time, CDMA versus SIM card and mm -hmm. voice and voice versus texting and texting came yeah. later. All that was done around the world, right? So, so, but we wanted to make sure that we, we were trying to plan as much for the future. There's no such thing as future-proof, but you want to sure. try to plan for the future and have flexibility, especially in, when you're building an infrastructure project. Um, and then building that flexibility just as much as you can. But all this is learning. You gotta learn as much as you can, and it's okay that you don't know something. You just gotta ask and, and just incorporate, learn, and then and then find all the best practices. Then finding the way and the mechanism to put in a package for you to implement. Right? So. Yeah, absolutely. Benny, I am taking notes right now. I, uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, this is this has been some in, invaluable information. Uh, there's a ton of people out there that are wanting to take some sort of a, you know, a path that's a little less than maybe the traditional path. Uh, and I, I think you're a really good example of somebody that you know found this really really interesting journey and and made a a, a massive impact from from everything that that I've gathered. So, you know, in closing, what I usually like to touch on is, you know, now that you've, you know, gotten to where you are, uh, what kind of impact do you want to make on the world? Well, that's a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I don't know. And I think that's okay to say I don't know. But at the end of the day, you know, absolutely. Um, I think there's levels, different levels. I do want to impact people. And whether that's in mass, um, that's something that I'm used to and rather do. And maybe in the future, I go back to that sector or in a sense of what we're doing here, we're impacting a large swaths of folks um, in our community. Um, you know, and some people, they want to impact certain lives, but, you know, I've always got that mindset of trying to figure out how to really impact in a positive way society. So, um, you know, also from the, you know, there's a lot of problems we have in our world, whether it be in America or whether it be in a different country. And, you know, today we're witnessing some pretty bad stuff that we didn't think was going to happen in, in, in this century, but it's happening. Um, and the world will keep changing. But as long as we are authentic and, and have integrity in what we do, I think we're all better for it uh, as, as, as a community and a society. Um, those don't always work that way, but uh, having that positive attitude and looking at change. And I love the fact that um, the world, at least in America, and I think the world is following. Look, you see a lot of companies that are cause-based companies that are using causes and be effective and authentic at addressing causes as part of their business model. And I love that. I love the fact that we are mobilizing society to do so. And I hope that trend continues and sticks. And I think we'll be all the better for it. Absolutely. I, uh, I, I love that as well. Benny, where can everybody find you and, and, and keep up with you? Is there anything that you want to shout out? Anything you want to plug? Anything at all? <laughs> uh, you know, follow LAFC um, and uh, 
and I try to post as, as much as I can at LAC Stadium. Benny is the, my handle. But uh, check us out as a team. Uh, check us out on how we approached our business. I think it's very unique and interesting. Um, you know, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, and uh, you're still trying to... I, at this point in my career, I'm still trying to wonder what this kid wants to do when he grows up. So um, more to come. I love that so much. Well, hey, Benny, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for being on the GEM series. Uh, everybody, take notes. Uh, Benny's doing some amazing stuff. Uh, I, you know, I hope you have a great day and uh, hope everybody, uh, yeah, uh, you know, send some, send some good questions and goes to a heck of a lot of LAFC matches. So. <laughs> hey, welcome. And thank you for having me, Blake. Really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to, uh, to share. Thanks, Benny. All right, cheers. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Gem Series, the podcast for anybody dedicated to investing in themselves. If you'd like to see the resources mentioned in this episode, learn more about what we are up to at Rocket Level, or come over and join our team, just click on the links below. Until next time, this is Blake Chapman, and remember to be awesome and do awesome things.